In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, not anything was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Hi, this is Polly Woods, and I'm so excited that you're listening to the Beautiful Words podcast. Today, we will be tackling the poetic introduction to the book of John. Well, let's dive right in. Now, as I read those words, I hope that you let the beauty of them wash over you. The author writes this introduction in poetry, using repetition to transport you to a place where you can see the whole of creation, a macro view of the beginning without ignoring the place that we are right now. From the holy and perfect creation of God to the evil that came and tried to overcome that good, the author is saying, remember that after every creation, God said it was good? Well, pay attention because darkness will not overcome that good. The author is starting this book by creating a feeling. He's starting by telling you the ending. The darkness has not overcome it. So let's look deeper into this preface. The first line is, in the beginning was the word. If you know your Old Testament, and remember, I told you, you need to know it. So if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that the author is referring back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the author is first of all suggesting that his gospel mirrors the book of Genesis, or if we really want to take into account the author's Jewish background, it mirrors the Torah. It starts in the same place the Torah starts. We talked about the author's theme that Jesus is the new Israel. Well, it seems here that he's starting that theme right in this moment where the gospel is in a sense, a new Torah. Now don't get it twisted. These themes of New Israel, New Moses, New Jacob, they don't negate or remove the importance of the first Israel, Moses or Jacob. These are concepts that are dependent on each other. They're intertwined in a meaningful way. So your Old Testament isn't outdated. It is part of this beautiful narrative that's being woven in the New Testament. So here we have a reference to the book of Genesis and the greatest tragedy in the biblical narrative. And we know that that tragedy ends in the promise of a savior. Well, in the book of John, the author frames it with the statement, the darkness has not overcome it. In other words, the promise of Genesis has come true. This is the fulfillment of that promise. And he's about to tell you what that fulfillment is. So scholars suggest that the word in the phrase, in the beginning was the word, refers to the Torah. Jewish custom spoke of the Torah being the first creation of God. The Torah, it signifies wisdom, supreme revelation from God. Um, There's something very significant about the idea that God's first creation would be something that reveals himself to us even before we ourselves are created. So he intended to create us all from the beginning, and he wanted to make sure that there was a way to reveal himself to us. And so the idea is that the Torah was the first creation of God. And as we move through this verse, we learn that the author is suggesting that Jesus himself is the word. But how can the word be both Torah and Jesus? 
Well, we just said it. The Torah is something that reveals God to man. And Jesus is just that. Through this gospel, listen as Jesus repeats that if you know him, then you know God. Now, the author does not in any way suggest that Jesus is God's first creation, as some would say. But this, because um, this would not take into account the clear intentions in the author's next phrase. And the word was with God and the word was God. So here we see the beginning of the author's apologetic that Jesus is in fact God. We talked about how the Trinity is one of the themes in this gospel and John kicks it off right away. The word was both with God and the word was God. This immediately feels like an uncomfortable juxtaposition. What do we do when we have uncomfortable moments like this where we try to piece together what it means to be God but also be with God? This is this is a weird um, sort of phrase for us to try to understand. He is him, but he is separate from him. And this is a moment where we need to stop and remind ourselves about the character of God. I think in the past for the church, it was common to approach um, whenever Christians would read something that they didn't understand in the Bible, they'd rush to explain it in a way that fits into our small understanding. The thing is, if God were small enough that he fit into your head, he wouldn't be God at all. He'd be no greater than Hercules, no more powerful than Zeus. If every detail about God could be accurately described and understood in a way that would make sense to you and to me, then he would be, he wouldn't be the omnipotent, the most powerful, the one who comes before and is greater than all things. <clears throat> now, the parts of him that we do understand, those are a gift. We understand them firstly because he gifted us his image. When he created us, he did so in his image. And so there are things about him that you and I can understand that no bird, no dog, no big cat could ever understand. And yet, being in his image, we are still not fully like him. We are not God. We're not eternal. We're not immortal. We're not three in one. So when we start talking about a mystery like the Trinity, a mystery like the one we read here in the first chapter of John, rather than be seduced by the desire to make this more understandable, can we just allow that to be a mystery that we are just too small to understand? Can we marvel at the beauty of God who is in constant relationship with himself, three persons in perfect harmony, but admit that we can't fully understand how three can fit into one? This is a moment that's beautiful in its discomfort for us. So imagine the discomfort that this caused by, to a people who was defined by their monotheism. The Jewish people had long been one of the only one of their peers who did not believe in multiple gods. That was the thing that made them stand out. Um, as a matter of fact, we, as we mentioned in the previous episode, the community that this gospel was written to had been kicked out of the synagogue exactly for this reason. In the Jewish perspective, the idea that God and Jesus were one 
and yet separate, was a slap in the face of their most important dogma, that there is only one God. And so for the author to start with this statement, you're hearing exactly how important the Trinity was for a Christian understanding of Jesus and his very existence. You can't have Christianity without a full belief in the Trinity. You can't have a full understanding of the Bible without a belief in the Trinity. Now, not to go off on a tangent, but this may be important in your interactions with your neighbors. No other major religion believes in the Trinity as such. And you may find yourself in a conversation with someone, maybe a Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim. Religions that have a certain acknowledgement of Jesus, but do not allow him to be God and separate from God at the same time. So sometimes this particular text is used as a proof text that Jesus is not God. Some will claim that in Greek, the phrase, the word was God, should be correctly translated and the word was a God, lowercase g. Um, so just, just in case you ever end up in that conversation, you can tell them. <laughs> this understanding comes from a misunderstanding of the use of the article in Greek. I know, it's a lot of technical language. Um, but basically what it's saying is um, there's something called Cowell's Rule. And that allows for there not to be an article before the word God. Allowing the phrase to be translated in the way that we see here, the word was God, capital G. Um, that's probably a lot more than you wanted to know. But since so many have been pulled into a conversation about this verse, I thought it might be essential to your conversations and your relationships for you to know um, this little fact. All right, verse three. All things were made through him. Wow, what a picture. Going back to Genesis, how does God create? We know exactly how God creates. We remember that from our Sunday school classes or from our children's Bible. God creates through words. We know this. God said, let there be light. Let there be an expanse. Let the waters be gathered and on and on. God created using nothing more than a word and he did it over and over again. And the author takes this theme and declares that that word is Jesus. He says, all things were made through him. It sounds very figurative and it is in some ways, but the idea that Jesus was the agent of creation, was the verb of creation, is not something that this author came up with after 60 years of pondering after Jesus' death. This was a belief in the church from the very beginning of the church. So something you need to know as you start studying the Bible, particularly the New Testament, is that um, the chronology of the New Testament isn't quite right. Um, the Gospels appear first in the New Testament, but they were by and large written after the epistles. And in case you don't know what the epistles are, they're the letters of Paul and the other disciples which appear between Acts and Revelation. So <clears throat> things that are said about Jesus or his time on earth in the epistles are chronologically closer to the events than the gospels are. So the theology that we read in the epistles when, when the writer of the epistle is giving you flowery language and important details about theology, um, these things were things that were believed from the very beginning of Christ followers on earth. And this is significant because the closer you get to Jesus's time, the more you guarantee that this theology 
was that that was taught by Jesus himself. And Jesus' theology and our belief is his expression of truth that only he is able to reveal. Over and over again in this gospel, we'll be hearing about how he is revealing from the Father things that only he knows. And so the closer the theology is to the teachings of Jesus, um, the more likely we're getting to that nugget of truth. And so when we see something in the gospels that's also repeated um, in the epistles, we know that this is a very early belief. This is something that came very close to the teachings of Jesus. So, as we were saying, the author of John did not come up with the idea of all things being made through the word who is Jesus. There are several places in the epistles where this appears. I'm going to make a list. You can write it down and check it out later. But um, it appears in Colossians 1.16, Romans 11.36, Hebrews 1.2, and 1 Corinthians 8.6. Those are all some good examples. We're going to just read Colossians 1.16 because it has the closest, well, in my opinion, the closest resemblance to this text. And it says, verse 16, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him. So if Colossians was written in the 50s AD, we see a theology that was very developed only 20 years after the death of Jesus. And as I said, the chronological closeness to the teachings of Jesus gives us an insight into how important and accurate this theology is. We can trust that the author is saying that Jesus was present and was the agent. Again, it's Jesus was the verb, the action, the one who made creation happen along with God. And that's an um, incredible piece of theology right there. Um, so moving through the passage, we see the beginnings of the author's light and darkness theme, and it's hinting to future references to this theme. And of course, the beautiful verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Now, we're going to find out that this author loves double meanings. This is part of his genius. And we talked about this author being very sophisticated, having an amazing grasp of language. And this is an example of that. He, he likes to use words that have dual meanings, and it's amazing when you start to find these little words. So here, the word in the Greek that was translated to overcome has a second meaning, and that meaning is understand. Now let's think about this. We just read the darkness has not overcome it, but what if it also means the darkness has not understood it? So we'll spend a lot of this book watching the experts of the Bible, not understanding that the fulfillment of those texts is walking and talking and acting among them. Jesus speaks to these experts, these elite, these people who have had such an education, and they understand nothing of what he's saying. And so the darkness hasn't overcome the light, but it also hasn't understood the light. So anyway, moving on to verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. 
He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light. Now, of course, you know that here we're referring to John the Baptist. Side note, (laughs) I had a professor who liked to call him John the Baptizer, just so you don't have the temptation to think he was taking fried chicken to a potluck every Sunday. Um, So I'm probably going to try to refer to him as the Baptizer, just to keep that confusion from happening in our modern minds. So anyway, to us... It seems necessary. It seems totally unnecessary to say that John was not the light, but bore witness to the light. We know very well that John was Jesus's cousin. His job was to point out um, when Jesus arrived. Um, But as you can imagine, John made quite an impression on some pretty large crowds. And a lot of those people at this point in time are still alive and have their children and are still pretty enamored with that message that they heard so many years ago by the waters, by the Jordan River with John. And so as a result, there are people who did not make the belief move from John to Jesus. There are people who still revere John as the prophet sent from God and haven't moved on to realizing that Jesus is the Messiah. There are even people who believe John the Baptist was the Messiah. Um, The author here is trying to set the record straight that although John was important, he was no Jesus. He was not the Messiah. And it's coming from, um, and you'll see who it's coming from um, in our next episode. Um, And so let's keep reading through uh, from verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of of the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God." And the world became word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you know that place where it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us? You know that word dwelt? It's a big deal. So back in the Old Testament, and there it is again. If you need to go back and start with Genesis and prepare yourself, learn that Old Testament, know it well, because there is a lot more references in store. So anyway, in the Old Testament, the presence of God was not freely available as the Holy Spirit is present with us. God chose Israel and chose to dwell with his people within the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, here's your reminder, the tabernacle came before the temple and it was essentially a moving temple uh, during the time that the Israelites were a nomadic people. So it was Moses's, essentially like Moses's temple. It was a, it was a tent. Um, the tabernacle is also where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and it symbolized God's relationship with the people. And in a very real way, this is where God lived when he was on earth, um, visiting his people, being side by side with his people, living with his people. So imagine what the author is trying to do here when he uses the word in Greek that we translated as dwell. It's the same word that's used for tabernacle. 
Quite literally, you could say, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, it drew a tent around God. He was there, but he was veiled for only the most holy to be able to experience. And here the author writes, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The true tabernacle is Jesus. But here's the thing, unlike the tabernacle that veils the presence of God, he has not veiled, but he's fully revealed who God is who he is. And the author doesn't hide his intention because as we move through the verses, we can go right to verse 17 and he makes a direct reference to Moses. So in other words, if it seemed kind of unclear to you, oh, he dwelt among us. How does that relate to the tabernacle? John, the author of John, he goes right to the point and he makes a direct reference to Moses. In verse 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. So here the author makes it clear. With Moses, the law drew a barrier between man and God. Man could never get past that. It was an impossible barrier. And we prove that over and over again. But now, with grace and with truth, God has made himself visible to us. Where the author says, no one has ever seen God. That's another Old Testament reference. Do you remember what that's referencing? I hope you do. The only man in the Old Testament who had ever, quote unquote, seen God was Moses. Um, If you'll remember, there's a story in Exodus 33 where Moses begged to see God's glory. And at first, God was sort of keeping that. And then finally, he said yes. And he passed in front of Moses and he blocked his eyes so that he would only see God's back. And this is a a huge moment in the Old Testament where God revealed some of himself to Moses. But here we are. The significance of the incarnation of Jesus is that although no one has ever seen God... Jesus has now made him known. And Jesus is God and also separate from God. Remember, that's the reference to the Trinity that we have here. So all of a sudden we go from a God who is covered by a tent, by a tabernacle, and we're going to a God whose glory we can see. We're going from a God who no one has ever seen. Now, you know, this story, um, that's sort of the reference here. It says that um, no one has ever seen God. And what it means by that is that even when Moses asked to see God's glory, God covered him so that he would only see his back. So in other words, no one has ever fully seen God. And the significance of the incarnation is that we are seeing God. In Jesus, we are seeing God. So this first chunk of this first chapter is one of the richest one in the book. And it's kind of like having your dessert first. The author just packed in and prepared the reader for theology, for themes, for Old Testament references. This is so dense 
that that's why I decided to split this chapter up into two parts. And so next time we'll be tackling the rest of the chapter, verses 19 to 51. Well, that's all for now. This is Polly Woods. And remember these wonderful words from Shane Claiborne. The more I have read the Bible and studied the, love of Je- the life of Jesus, the more I have become convinced that Christianity spreads best not through force, but through fascination.